0: If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Also, welcome back to some of you. I see Deborah and others. It's great to have you guys back. And for those who are visiting, uh, welcome this morning. We're blessed that you're here. If you need to borrow a Bible, you just have to raise your hand real high in the air, and the guys will be happy to let you borrow a Bible so you can follow along with us. Again, Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Uh, we're also going to be uh, praying for the Carlsons. They're going to be taken off on us uh, for the second round. Uh, we're going to pray them back for a third time, but uh, uh, we love you guys. And uh, and I was very serious about we'll come visit you um, stateside, but we'll pray for you as well this morning. All right, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. I entitled our message this morning, Once For All, just taken from the text there. If you've been journeying with us through the book of Hebrews, or if you're familiar with this letter, uh, much of what we will read here this morning and unpack together has been something the author has already told us. Uh, He has already stated in one way or another, and, and obviously it's very important to him, it's very important to God. Uh, we, we tend to repeat what we want reinforced, and God's Word is no different. Uh, and sometimes it's just good. You know, it's just good for our own heart and soul to, uh, to, um, you know, to retake in what we've take, be, taken in before. you have a favorite meal, uh, you've eaten more than once, I assume. I mean, there was one time I was in Hawaii, went to Teddy Bigger Burger, and the next day I went back. It was so good. So that's, that's chapter 10. It's so good. The writer just comes back to the same material. In many ways, uh, we might even say it's just a it's a closing recap of everything he's already presented. That began way back in chapter four, by the way, when he began to talk about Jesus being the better and eternal High Priest. So uh, that's where we're at. Chapter ten. If you can stand with me, please, as we honor God in His Word. We won't read all 18 verses. Let me just read. Uh, Up to verse 4. The writer says, for the law, of course speaking about the Mosaic law, the old covenant, for the old covenant, the Mosaic law, the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, of course they being the priests, make those who approach Perfect or whole or holy. For then they would for then would they not have ceased to be offered? He's asking this question. For the worshipers, once purified, would have then no more consciousness of sins. But because they happen every year, but in those same sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. And then he just tells us plainly, he said this before. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. All right, we're going to pause there. We'll pray together. We're going to pray for the Carlsons as well. And would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for the morning. Lord, as we consider everything that has happened in the world Lately. God, once again, we we look outside of our four walls and we see a lot of unrest and confusion and anger. And, and some of it we would even say rightly so and justified. Lord, a lot of darkness. And... Lord, as we consider that view for us, it, it can cause us to then feel it uneasy and uncertain about what awaits us, what awaits our kids. But Lord, as we'll be reminded today, Lord, we, we can get our eyes off of those things and put them on you where they belong. And when we do that, Lord, we're, we then are reminded of your goodness and your grace Lord, of your greatness, your sovereignty, God, that you are completely in control, that you are on your throne. And while the governments of this world do their thing, Lord, we know that all of them are under subjection to you. And so, Father, in that, may we find our own peace and our strength, may we find our confidence. Lord, may we we find our bearing in that. God, give us wisdom in these dark days. Lord, help us to be the light that you've called us to be. Lord, we cast our cares to you because you care for us. and Lord, in exchange of our anxiety and our fears, Lord, you replace it with a peace that surpasses understanding. Thank you. Father, we thank you for the blessing not only of, of a relationship with you but a blessing of relationship with one another, that we get to be the family of God together and Lord. We want to lift up uh, one of our families of our family. Lord, we pray for the Carlsons this morning. We love them. We're going to miss them. Father, watch over them. Provide for them in every way. And, and Lord, I, I want to pray just a prayer of faith to agree with your scripture that uh, their eyes have not seen, their ears have not heard. Lord, they have not thought of, neither have we, everything that you desire to do in their life, in this next chapter and season, and Lord, in our lives too. So thank you, God, that you're good and your plans and thoughts towards us and towards the Carlsons are good, Lord. Father, bless them, we pray. Bless our time of study. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, would you take a moment and say hello to someone, and then you may have a seat. So, I'd say obviously uh, yesterday, a remarkable day, you know, in the 20 year anniversary of 9 11. You think about uh, everything that happened on that day and the days that followed. And I was even praying with Yoko before church started. And um, in her prayer, she reminded me how, at least in the United States, and I think even in many parts of the world, where uh, that Sunday that followed, how churches were packed. And people were looking for hope and answers and some kind of bearing. And of course, where do they turn? Well, they turn to the right place. They turn to God and they turn to His Word. And it was a terrible day. you know. Forever changed the United States. Forever changed all of our lives and perhaps arguably changed the whole world. I mean, so much so that we, we use it as a time stamp when we talk about things today, right? How things go and procedures. We, we use the phrase pre-9-11 and post-9-11 to describe the world around us. I mean, uh, that date so drastically altered what we do and how we do things. And, and it's, it's, a, it's crazy to me to think there's a generation of young people uh, who don't know anything of a pre-9-11 world. Now, 20 years later, we once again find ourselves in uh, very troublesome times. A terrible pandemic that has uh, forever changed all of our lives in the world as we know it. And it too creates a, a marker of time that we talk about pre-COVID now and COVID and post-COVID. But in that, you know, how much damage have we sustained and endured and, and, and you know, still trying to survive through? Who who knows what the fallout of COVID will be? I mean, it's still in full motion, and man, we pray for an end soon. You know, and, and, and when you think about COVID; it's not just the effect of getting sick with COVID. I mean, that in itself is a terrible and horrible thing. But but consider uh, the policies that we're um, reading about and now are under subjection to and regulations, and, and if I could add this, this increasing draconian measures that governments are taking. And, and there's a point where I, I don't, you know, it's almost as though my shock has become a little bit dull. Like, crazy just gets crazier, and shocking just gets more shocking, and, and, and you know, and it shakes us. And yet the Bible says listen, that's exactly what's going to happen. In fact, in, in the book of Hebrews, we're going to talk about how God will once again shake this world. And in one sense, it's good because it shaking wakes us up, right? It gets our attention. And so where do, we, where do we turn in these turbulent times? I mean, where do we go when the freedoms we once enjoyed are being... Uh, exchanged for a, I'll call it a false promise of security. Okay, I, I hope that you know where we go. We, we turn to Jesus. We cling to Jesus. We run to Jesus. We, we hold on to Jesus because it's in Jesus that we find our hope and our help and our future and our footing and our foundation and everything that keeps us secure and immovable, and abounding in the love of God. It's, it's all in Jesus. And everything else is sinking sand. And everything else will uh, leave you empty and dazed and confused. And in many ways, the, the book of Hebrews is a very timely message for us. Because there's an aspect of this that, that we are experiencing what the Hebrews experienced. Not exactly the same, but there's a lot of parallels. See, they were following Jesus in volatile times. The the superpower of Rome was dominant over their lands and their lives. And and, and along with that, the prevalent culture, what surrounded them, was, was... anti-church and anti-Christ. It was was against them. And so they found themselves wanting to follow Jesus in this culture and time where everything around them was going in the opposite direction. And they they were, if you will, swimming against the flow, swimming against the current, a very powerful pull of society around them and culture around them. And, And they had willingly left it all. Right? Abandoned their old life, abandoned what they um, knew and how to live, and what identified them, what they were secure in, where their relationships lied. And all of it they left for a life of faith in Jesus Christ. And it was countercultural. cultural The world we're living in today. It impacted friendships and their family, their everyday life. And for them, it was highlighted by the fact that as their neighbors and their co-workers and their friends and their family headed with the masses in one direction to the temple for them, they did not their life was no longer governed by the grandeur of the temple or the obligations of the Torah. And, and as they stood firm in their faith, it, it resulted in a great loss of those relationships. It resulted in a great loss of finances. It, it resulted in a great loss of security and community for them to take a stand in Jesus Christ. And, and they experienced, if you will, the the very first cancel culture. And even as they chose to remove themselves from the sights and the sounds and the smells and all of it, the old system, that choice was ratified by their friends and family, those who opposed their decision. And so it was a very real struggle. It was hard and it hurt. Because there are relationships, there are families that were involved. They experienced painful ridicule and pressure to rescind. And again, what's defined their life, what once dictated their life was was no more. And so the question for them is: what do we do now? What what do we do now that we have Chosen and in response to follow Jesus and we've left what we have known to be our security and, and what defined us before. Uh, what, what do we do now? What's going to carry us forward? And gang, that is the crux of this entire letter. The author encourages them and exhorts them. You haven't made a mistake. Don't drift away. Don't doubt God's word in light of what you experience. Keep going. Keep moving forward. And so the author reminds them, and we'll get there soon, in chapter 13, as he closes the letter, therefore let's go forth to Jesus. Because here, the idea is, here on earth, we have no lasting city. We have no permanent residence. But we seek, we look forward, we're pressing forward to one to come. And over and over again, the encouragement is, make sure you keep your eyes on Jesus. It's Hebrews 12 that really gives us the the pivot point of application from everything that he's talking about from chapter 1 to 11, that we're looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And consider him, the writer says, And the hostilities that He endured for the joy that was set before Him. Lest you too become weary in your own journey. And so we're to look to the Lord and consider the Lord. That old hymn goes to fix your eyes upon Jesus. And look full upon His wonderful face. And all of the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory. In grace. The writer desperately wants us to focus on the Lord. To consider Him in so many wonderful ways. And lately it has been to consider Him as our eternal High Priest. And what does that mean for us? And what did it mean for the original audience? And you already know he spent a lot of time explaining it exhausting almost every aspect of that perspective. And so, we come once again, and to be true to the text, we'll walk through these verses. As I mentioned before, it's, it's going to be a review of what He hopes uh, to reveal and for us to grab a hold of. And I'll just tell you namely, again, it is that Christ is superior, far superior to everything and specifically to the old system. He's superior to the priesthood. He's superior to the sacrifices. He's superior to the temple. He is superior to everything else, and therefore we don't need anything else. Verse 1. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and it is not the substance, it's not the very thing in itself, but those things never, with these same sacrifices, same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, can those things make those of us who approach perfect. Because if they could, that's the argument, then wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? Wouldn't the worshipers who were once then purified, they'd have no more consciousness of sin? Of course, he answers his own argument, but nope. But it is in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. It's not possible. It's impossible. It cannot be that the blood of bulls and goats would ever take away sins. And so the writer once again tells us how the old covenant, how the old system was inferior. He's going to highlight the superiority of Christ, but also showing how the old system was insufficient. Back in chapter 9, verse 9, he he says of the tabernacle, the furniture and the fixtures and the functions, you remember, in 9-9, they're all symbolic. Well, they're actual things, but they are pictures, They're, they're foreshadows, they represent something else. Later on in verse 24 of chapter 9, he says they are the copies of the heavenlies. Back in chapter 8, he says they are a shadow and a copy of heavenly things. And so he repeats this again. The law was a shadow of good things to come. We understand that. We understand shadows. You know, a shadow of something or someone indicates the, the presence or the proximity of the real thing. But the shadow in itself isn't the real thing. It's, it isn't the substance. It isn't the reality. It's just a, a display of it. It's an outline of it. Some of you have been traveling. Welcome back, Deborah and others who've been traveling, and David. And you returned recently. I mean, how weird would it be? And I think I used this illustration before, but bear with me. How weird would it be when you got off the boat or off the plane and on a sunny day and you came forth to your family and there your family, your loved ones, your friends came up to you, running up to you and all of a sudden they fell down at your shadow and began to try to hug your shadow and kiss your shadow and present their signs and their gifts to your shadow. Be like, what's wrong with you? Is this a practical joke? It would be really odd, right? We would be like, what's going on? Because why that the shadow's not you, oh, it's a picture of you, it's a an outline of you you are casting it, but it's not the real you, it's just a type of picture. you guys ever bought a a present for someone? maybe you bought it online, but if you're like me, you, you waited till the last minute, and it didn't get here, right? maybe it's a birthday, it's Christmas, and so. You ever just printed the picture of what you bought? Right? You just print the picture, and then you put it in a card, or you wrap the you wrap the picture, right? and then you give that as the gift. They open it up. Oh, it's a picture. You know, you have to explain to them. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's coming. It's not quite here yet. You have to wait. But you know, here is a picture of uh, of something I'm promising you. Here's something you can look at and hold on to. And we understand that, right? The picture's not the real gift. It's just just a deposit. It's just just the promise of the real thing to come. The writer is saying, listen, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, it's a picture. It's a picture of of a promise of the real thing to come. And the real thing is Jesus. And so when Jesus came, you don't need to hang on to that picture anymore. When Jesus arrived, you don't need to hug the shadow and and bow down to the shadow and worship the shadow. Now, the author also tells us that not only is it just a picture, but it's powerless. It's ineffective. It's incapable to do what God desires to do in our life. It can't truly cleanse the heart. Notice the two phrases that are used. It can never, in verse 1, it can never with these same sacrifices make those approach perfect. And the second in verse 4 is it is not possible. It's not possible that those sacrifices could take away sins. The religious system was never able to make anyone completely right before God. By the way, no religion can. Okay? Only a relationship in Jesus Christ can. Because instead of removing sin and guilt, what does the text tell us? Instead of a, a removal or a remission, what, what, what do those constant sins do? What are they, what, what, what do they serve? Class? Anyone know? A reminder. That's what it is. It's not removal, it's not remission. It's a reminder, a reminder of their sin, a reminder of their guilt. Every year they had to continually offer these same sacrifices over and over again. And so the writer's contention is this, if they really were sufficient, then once the person offered that, they would be released from their guilt. Their sin would be done away with, but that's not what happened. Instead of removing it, it reminded people of their sin. Do you like to be reminded of your sin? You like to be reminded of your guilt. Who likes that? No one likes that, right? It's not fun. No one likes to be reminded of, of our. Well, I'll, I'll speak of myself. You know, I don't like to be reminded of my stupidity and the dumb things that I said and mistakes that I've made and my outburst. You know, like who likes to be reminded of that? I don't think anybody does. And yet, that's exactly what the system did. Well, some years ago, my kids, my boys, they're messing around, and, and, and one of them got really angry to the point where you know, he didn't know what to do with his, his pent-up frustration. And so in his anger, he punched the wooden door, and he broke it, and he put a hole in the door to his bedroom. And so every time he went into his room, there it was a reminder of his outbursts. And we just left it there for a bit, and so his friends would come over and be like, "Ooh, what happened?" And he'd have to humble himself and embarrassed and be like, "Ah, got a little angry." And then at one point he kind of made like a prideful thing, "Oh yeah, I did that," you know, one punch. Like it's just a little thin piece of wood, you know, it's not like. And then we'd have company come over and be like, "Hey, come see what one of our kids did. Let me show you." You know, give them a tour of the house, not just a <laughs> Christy was good. She's a good mom. She covered it with a poster of her favorite Superman. You know, just joking. <laughs> Who likes to be reminded of their sins? I, the sacrifices of the temple were a constant reminder of your and my sin, their sin. And, and the blood of bulls and the blood of goats, it was like putting a poster on it. It just covered it It covered it temporarily, but it never really did away with it. For a moment it was covered, and then yet, what would happen? You would sin again, I would sin again, they would sin again, and and again, and on and on, this whole thing goes. Of course, he doesn't say it here, but we already know where he's going with this. It's only Jesus. His sacrifice, his perfect once-for-all sacrifice that takes away not just covers, but takes away our guilt and our shame in the sin itself. And so he he tells us of the inferiority, the the, the you know, just the lacking of of what the old covenant could do. It was impossible. In verse five, he says, "Therefore, when he came into the world, he said." Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you've prepared for me. In the burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin, you had no pleasure. This is speaking to God. And then I said, Behold, I've come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. In verses 5 through 7, what we discover is that the writer then now moves, or quotes, I should say, the Old Testament. He quotes Scripture. We've talked about this before. This isn't just his fanciful ideas. He's he's letting them know, listen, this was part of God's plan, and so he's going to quote Scripture to back up his point. God already had a solution in mind. Did God know that the Old system? was insufficient. Yes, God knew that. In fact, He designed it that way. But God also had a solution. The Old Testament was a picture, like I mentioned, of something promised, something real, something better. God was going to deliver. It wasn't going to get lost in the mail. And the Bible is filled with hundreds of these pictures and promises and prophecies all pointing to Christ. And Psalm 40, where he's quoting from, is one of them. It's an interesting psalm where it's taken from the perspective of a pre-incarnate Christ speaking to the Father about how what's going to happen, how He's going to come. And so it's a, it's a prophetic picture, but it's also a promise. I guess they, they're the same, right? That's synonymous of Jesus. And it declares two important things to us. First, that God is not pleased... By sacrifices given with no sincerity. Sacrifices and offering you did not desire. Burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure in that. You know, often the Old Testament tells us that God desired obedience the idea of a willing heart, a submitted heart, a contrite heart. These are the things that God does not despise, for God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. God was and is not pleased by rote rituals, like brainless motion, or any time that you and I would try to offer Him something with our heart detached, just to do it for the sake of doing it. Let me just check this box. If, if you know, we try to bring an offering that's detached of devotion, God despises it. He doesn't want it. Because that's not what He's really interested in. You understand? He's interested in you. He's interested in your heart. Jesus said to the religious leaders, They worship me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. And so, gang, we have to be careful because we can be guilty of the same thing to come in and and to treat worship as though it's just a, a necessary kind of exercise to get us to the message. Or we're just reading the words off the overhead and we have no sincerity. Like, we're not engaged or thinking about, or actually singing about, do you understand that that God doesn't accept that worship? Or if we come and we want to, you know, we we give, if I can say it this way, with the wrong heart and, and a bad attitude. If it's just if we're grumbling and, and it's just kind of a junky attitude, God says, "Hey, keep your gift." He's looking for a joyful generosity and you know, a and a willful and and, and and joyful giving. Because what what was true then is also true now. We we really need to consider and take uh, an inventory of how we come before the Lord. And what are we bringing before God? And what does God really desire from you? And so I wanted to just make a point out of this, if I can. Our hearts fully surrendered is what God is interested in. It's what pleases the Lord. Psalm 40, that prophecy, points to the one who would do what God wanted to fulfill God's will. What God was desiring and what pleased the Father only could come through Christ and the offering that He brings. See, Jesus then came. He says, right? You gave me a body. The Bible tells us that God left heaven in the person of Christ and He took on human flesh and He was born of a virgin and He he came to this earth fully God and fully man and He lived a perfect life in your place and mine because we can't and we didn't and we don't. And He died on a cross to take your sins and mine and the penalty of that, the payment that we deserved. He came in a body. See, God's plan and God's will from the beginning of time, it was fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled what God had willed. What God set in motion, Jesus, God the Father set in motion, God the Son accomplished. Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, is how that psalm ends. You remember Jesus' prayer in John 17? a beautiful prayer. It's a prayer for the disciples then, and, and I believe even for us now. And in verse 4, he says, I have glorified you on earth, and I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Oh man, I, I pray that we can pray that prayer. I pray we can pray the prayer that, Lord, we are, we are in motion. We are seeking to finish what you've given us to do. Jesus, the submission of Jesus to the Father's will, it has its, its fulfillment in His obedience to the cross. Because it's there on the cross and He cries out, It is finished. Now, you notice with me also this beautiful phrase, verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come, and in the volume of the book it is written of me. In verse 7, we could, we could just do a whole Sunday message on verse 7 alone. We've talked about this before. All of the scripture, it points to Christ. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. And here's the thing that you know just amazes me though. It's all about him. And yet we come to realize that the entire reason that Jesus came was for you. It's all about Him. It's all about His love and His grace, His goodness and His mercy and His majesty. And yet the whole reason He came was so that you and I could have a relationship with God. He came to rescue us to redeem us, to make us His own. Paul writes to the church in, Galatia, in in Galatians chapter 4, he says, when the fullness of time had come, God said, okay, it's time. All of the prophecies of time and space, they converge and the fullness of time came. What happened? God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those then who were under the law, so that we then might receive adoption as the children of God. In Romans chapter 5, you see just at the right time, when we were powerless, we couldn't do anything about our lives. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone would possibly die. And yet God demonstrated His own love for you and for me that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the sacrifice of Jesus accomplished what the Old Testament could never accomplish. And Psalm 40 tells us it was all part of God's plan and and a reminder. Again, it's a reminder. We've already learned this. What did Christ's sacrifice accomplish for us? Well, We are completely and wholly cleansed. And God sees you and I as perfect. He sees us in His Son. That's an amazing thought. Verse 8-10, through previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. And then He said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that's where I got our title from. Once for all. It's settled. Now if you're like, that just sounds familiar. Verses 8 and 10. Didn't we read that? Yep, we just did. He, he just repeated himself. But notice though, he, he he's He's quoting a quote and the reason he's doing so is because he wants to explain it. It's basically, it's just Bible study. I mean, that's basically what we do, right? We read the scripture again and reread what we just read and give an explanation as to what we just read. That, that's the basics of Bible study, by the way. Let's read it. Let's understand it. What's the meaning? And then so what? How does that apply to us? What's the application? So he's telling us This was God's will. This is what God wanted from the beginning. And here are the verses that support that position. This is what God wanted in the beginning. He he, he established the first, but then He sets it aside. It had a planned obsolescence. There's an expiration date. He sets it aside. Now He puts the new one in its place. Well... What was the purpose of the first one then? If the first one was insufficient and incomplete, why even have it? Well, mainly it was preparation is what he's telling us. It was preparation, but it was also for revelation to prepare us and to get us to see. Get us to see, well, first of all, get us to see the glory of God It's the law that reveals, the law is perfect because it reflects the perfection of God. And so the law reflects the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God. And so when we look at it, we realize, oh, this this matches who God is, the standard of God. And it's also when we quickly discovered, oh, we can't live up to that. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. It's an unattainable standard. You might be there for a second, and then you're gone. You look at that, and you think, "Man, that is to do that always, constantly." Some years ago, gosh, a lot of years ago now, uh, we had a Navy SEAL that fellowshiped with us, and he was kind of an odd. Thing because I don't think they're normally here, but he was just on special assignment and super nice guy and loved the Lord. And he'd often be traveling. And so when he did, he was very gracious and said, hey, if you have any mission teams or visitors that come, they can stay in my apartment. And we're like, man, thanks. And so we went to his apartment one time, just kind of get the lay of the land and figure out how things work. And, and so when we show up at his house, I remember just being impressed on a number of things. He didn't own a TV, first of all. And I'm like, hey, Mike, you don't have a TV? He's like, yeah, I just like to read my Bible. And I'm like, really? You're more holy than I, you know. <laughs> and then he was wanting to learn Japanese. So everything in his house, he had a label of everything in Japanese the refrigerator, the cabinet, the mirror, the door. And then on his wall, he had his workout routine. And so I remember, like, looking at this thing, I'm like, Hey, Mike, is this like your monthly thing? Mm -hmm. He's like, no, that's my daily workout. (laughs) I'm like, that that many push-ups? Like, that's what I do, I think, in five years, I think, I, you know. (laughs) It was beyond my reach. Like, no way, this guy's an animal. (laughs) Listen, the law of God is beyond our reach. It reveals... The glory of God but it also reveals that we are we it's beyond our reach we're fallen what else does it reveal though well it reveals the fact because we're fallen, right that a boundary needs to be defined if we if there's no boundary there's no limit that's listed then how do we know that we've crossed it how do we know that we've transgressed it by the way that's why setting boundaries in your life is very important for you and for others but the law, what did it do? Well, it revealed the limits. It, well, it revealed when we transgressed. And Paul says, without it, I wouldn't know known that I was a sinner. What else did it reveal? Well, we've already talked about this too. It revealed the seriousness of sin. We considered this point last week. The blood that was sprinkled and splattered over everything, over the book and the scroll and the mercy seat and the people and the offerings. It it was a graphic visual reminder of the seriousness of sin. You couldn't escape it. It was literally in your face and on you. And so the Old Testament was uh, a, a promise. It was a picture. But it was preparation and it was revelation. It revealed all of these things. But also it prepared the people. One way it's described, Paul describes it as like a teacher, a tutor, or even some would even say like a a babysitter in Galatians chapter 3. Therefore the law was our tutor and it brought us to Christ. It was designed to temporarily contain them until Jesus came. It was uh, like when I printed off a picture of a present that my kid was going to get, the picture still, or the thing still coming, hang on to this until you get it. And so it guarded them and it guided them until Jesus came. And when Jesus arrived, they didn't need that anymore. Now the substance is here. I'll throw in my own illustration. I think of it like an airplane. It's you know you get on the airplane and you're contained, you are protected, but you're also restricted. It's not like you can say, "Ah, I think I'm gonna go and play outside for a little bit, right? I'm gonna take a little walk, get some fresh air." Nope, you're gonna go see Jesus, right? You open that door. And you can't just stroll into the kitchen and open the fridge, like, "Hey, what's going? What do you got in here?" You know, like you're very restricted. And there are people who walk around in uniforms and they tell you what you can and cannot do. And they tell you that you, you know, you can't go to the bathroom right now, or you can't eat, or you can't have a drink. Like, right? It's it's signs and bells that dictate where you know if you can get up or sit down, and when you sleep and when you can eat. They control the lights. They control the temperature. But it's all temporary, thank God. Your life changes once that plane lands and you get off the plane. The dominion of control, uh, it's, it's temporary, it's gone. You're no longer contained, you're no longer restricted. Uh, see, the old covenant is like an airplane that that contained us and protected us or them. And then when it landed, it brought God's people to his desired destination of faith in Christ. And the writer basically is saying, listen, get off the plane. Enjoy the freedom. You're no longer bound by those things. God's replaced it. And he goes on to talk about in verse 11 how every priest stands ministering daily and offering Repeatedly the same sacrifices, and again, it's the same phrase, which can never take away sins. Hopefully we get this. (laughs) It's just driving the same point home. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, forever, right, Sandlot, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever. Just so that we don't miss it, those who are being sanctified. Now the writer comes back to the priesthood. What he began in way back in chapter four. Remember at one point he's like, ah, I want to move on into deeper things, but we want to move on from the elementary things. Congratulations, you guys are graduating. We've moved on from the elementary things. And what has he been doing this whole time? He's been making a comparison and a contrast between Jesus and the priesthood of Jesus and the Levitical priesthood. Temporary, eternal. Many, one. Constant, finished. And notice, he says, every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly. It's a job that's never done. The, the Levites were like the moms of the Old Testament, just always working. Their job is never done. And I, I remember as a kid, uh, I, I, I've shared this over the years too, I, I used to think my, my Okinawan grandma, my Oba, I used to think she was a robot. No joke, I literally I thought she was a robot. When I was a kid, I never saw her sleep. And even as I moved back here and was an adult, I never saw her. I don't even know where she slept. And I really don't think she slept. Because me and my cousin would stay up late at night and she'd still be up. You know, fighting my eyes to the end and then my grandma would just be there. And then when I wake up early in the morning, sometimes we'd go to the beach or go fishing with my uncles or whatever. And my grandma would already be awake making breakfast in the kitchen. Like, my grandma's a robot, you know, just (laughs) always working. That's like the Levites, standing, continually ministering. And listen, there were no seats in the sanctuary except for the mercy seat, and no one dare sat on that. That was right where the presence of God was. The priests never sat down because their are nudies, they're nudies, (laughs) they're... Uh Uh-oh, we need to kill the live stream right now. Their duties, sorry, their duties. I'm a sinner. (laughs) Their duties were never done. Oh, Lord, help me. (laughs) Their sacrifices never ceased. The priest stood and had to remain standing. You know, today standing desks are popular. That's the thing. Even treadmill desks. Can you see those? Christy's like, You should get one. I'm like, No, I'm not going to get one. <laughs> that was the priest's job. It was like a treadmill job. It just kept on, well, more like a conveyor belt. You guys, you ever see, you know who I Love Lucy is? Remember the old I Love Lucy episode where her and Ethel are at the chocolate factory and they're trying to, and they keep the conveyor belt. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'll send you the video link later, okay? They're working, and here comes the chocolates, and it's going faster, and they can't you know, keep up and so they start eating it, and they're stuffing it in their clothes. and That's the Levites. It's just a conveyor belt that keeps going and going and going and going. But notice the contrast in verse 12. But this man, Jesus, of course, after he offered one sacrifice, what does it say he did? He sat down. He's not standing. He sat down. Why? Because the work's done. The work is finished. The job is completed. Nothing is left for him and by the way for in terms of our salvation nothing is left for anybody to do. It's done. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for the final installment of God's divine plan to be put in motion. Well, it's in motion. And at the end of the ages, the fullness of his kingship will be realized, right? where his enemies will become his footstool. But Jesus is done. The work is completed. What a contrast between the priests, many of them, constantly working, and Jesus, his one sacrifice, perfect sacrifice of himself, and now he sits down and he's done. Remember back in the earlier chapters, he invites us into that rest. Right? Some of you, you know, you're looking forward to retirement. Some of us, are like, ah, I'm going to work till Jesus takes me home. Right? I have friends, they've retired. They grow beards and belly, they just look like me. You know? <laughs> Here's what we're reminded of. And it's a good reminder, it's something we've already reviewed, but the work of salvation to secure you, to adopt you, to redeem you and me. It's completed. Nothing else remains. We can't add to it. We can't do anything. Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross. And so the rescue mission was successful. The payment went through. The sacrifice was all sufficient. Unlike the Levites, over and over and over again, the sacrifice of Christ is superior It's perfect, and guess what? It perfects us. It's perfect, and it perfects us. Verse 14 says, We then are perfected by it. And I like how it's phrased. For one by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Your translation might even say set apart or or, um, um, being perfected. That word sanctify—it's not a word we often use in our normal vocabulary. It's a Bible word, but it means that. Just it means to be set apart. You think about perhaps at your house you have a set of dishes that you only pull out on special occasions, or maybe around Thanksgiving, or uh, you know you have a special dinner, and then you—those aren't the norm, You know those are the dishes you don't always use, and maybe they're even on display, or maybe you have certain jewelry or certain watch that you have, and you don't wear it as your everyday watch, it's when you get dressed up, when you go out, when there's a special occasion, you put on that special watch, or you put on that special jewelry, or you pull out the special dishes, those are reserved, they're, they're set apart, they're sanctified for a particular occasion, that's what, that's what God does with us. He sets us apart, He pulls us out of the world, and He makes us His very own. But that, that word has two parts, if you will. It has two meanings. Sanctification has two ways of looking at it. One is what's often called positional sanctification. The Bible also calls it justification. Justification. That we have been declared, it's a legal term, you've been declared innocent, you're no longer guilty, you've been exonerated. It's positional. And then there's what's called practical, or some even call it progressive sanctification. It's the work of the Spirit that God's doing constantly in our lives. And I liken it to like being recruited by a major sports team. Think about your favorite sports team, whatever sport that might be, and, and let's say that you were recruited. That you got a phone call and the owner of the team said, I'm picking you, you're going to be on my team, and your response will be like, why? Why me? Because I love you, because I want you. Positionally, you're on the team, you get a uniform, you get a number, you're on the roster. And the only reason you're on there is because, well, because of grace and his love, and you're on there. You're on the team because Jesus wanted you on the team and he loves you. That's positional. But then practically, you're not so good. You can't kick the ball well, you can't shoot well, you can't hit well. And so Jesus wants to then transform us and work in us and with us so that we can enjoy and participate on the team in the greatest of ways so we can have the maximum of enjoyment and and to use the gifts and the talents and our personality to affect the kingdom of God. See, you've been saved from the world, but now the Spirit works in you to take the world out of you. And So that's what the Spirit does. Saves us, and then continues to work in us, and that's what makes faith in Jesus Christ so different from every other religion in the world. And we don't work for this; we work from it, if you will. We work in a uh, we, in response to all that God has done. It's it's God inside of us. The Bible says it's God who then wills and works in you, to then to us for us to do, and will for His good pleasure. We get that backwards so many times. Verse 16. This is the covenant which I will make with them after these days, says the Lord. I'll put my law into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission or forgiveness of these, there is no longer then an offering for sin. Verses 15 through 18 here as we close. Listen. Listen. Again, the author, notice he's quoting Scripture. A reminder how good it is for us to go back to Scripture, let Scripture interpret Scripture. And it's not just the writer's idea. It's not like, hey, I have that kind of this wild thought I want to present to you. No, this is something that God has declared all along. This is something that God has wanted all along. It's the Spirit that testifies to this truth. And how does the Spirit testify? Notice, by the way, it's the Spirit then that testifies by the Word of God. I make just kind of a side point. That, that is primarily how the Spirit of the Lord speaks to us. Does He speak in our hearts? That still small voice? Of course He does. Does He use others? Absolutely. Circumstances? Certainly but primarily you want to hear from God? Open your Bible. Open your Bible and read the Scriptures. It is through the Scriptures which the Spirit then speaks. And so here the Spirit testifies. This is the covenant. Now the author goes to the Bible to back his point and he quotes from Jeremiah 31, from 31 through 34. And again, it's a recap of what he's already told us what Christ did the sacrifice that Christ made was completely sufficient once for all that's completely superior to every sacrifice that the Levitical system you know made And because of that, and he says in verse 18, therefore, because that has happened, there no longer then needs to be any offering. It's all done away with. Okay, we understand the what. Here's the why. You know, there's a lot of people that will talk about remember your why. And that's a good thing. I mean, we can remember God's why. You ready? Why? What was God's why? Verse 16. And I will make them, says the Lord, and I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Here's God's why. You. God wants a loving, growing, dynamic relationship with you. The perpetual payment, the payment plan of our sins, Jesus paid with a lump sum by himself. It's all done. And so, there's no more offering needed. And if there's no more offering needed for sin, guess what? There's no more need to remember the sin. It's been done away with. God remembers your sin no more. There's no hole in the door that He constantly brings you to. It's gone. Because He loves you. And he wants us to, if you will, get off the plane and walk in freedom. Enjoy what he has. A loving, dynamic, growing relationship with God our Father. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you in many ways a reminder and review of the things that we have learned and studied already. But like a good meal, it's so good. It's so good that we would preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again. Reminder that it's your spirit that saves us. The work is done. There's nothing else to do. And it's your spirit that then sanctifies us. You who works in us, Lord, changing us from the inside out. I guess in many ways, Lord, it's just us to surrender to that work. Thank you, God, when you see us, you see us really in our potential. We don't even see ourselves that way. But when you look upon us, Lord, you look upon us, we are complete, we are perfect. God, help us to see us and others as you see us. Lord, and forgive us for trying to bring to you an offering that really doesn't please you that we're just going through the motions or checking a box, God, forgive us. Lord, may we bring a sacrifice of praise. May we bring our hearts fully surrendered to you. And Lord, thank you that we, in many ways, can relate to what the original audience was going through as they lived in in troublesome times with so much pressure. A reminder just to keep our eyes on You. Lord, You are the good thing that has come, and You are the good thing that is coming. And we fix our eyes on Jesus. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.